Welcome to the 56th episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. I am your host, Logan Bartlett, a partner at Redpoint Ventures. And what you're going to hear on this episode is a conversation that I had with Kevin Ryan. Kevin is one of the more interesting people in the technology world, having started a number of different companies. So he was the CEO of DoubleClick, which was acquired by uh, Google for $3.1 billion. He co-founded MongoDB, which is a $15 billion uh, public database company. He co-founded Business Insider, co-founded Guilt Group, co-founded uh, Zola, uh, among many other businesses. And so he is a prolific and serial entrepreneur that has a kind of an incubator studio type model where he comes up with a bunch of different ideas and uh, helps turn them into companies. And so we have a really fun conversation about where he's spending time these days. Uh, the answer is healthcare and psychedelics as well. And so definitely an interesting uh, perspective that he has on the the state of the regulatory market and uh, some of the benefits of different psychedelic drugs and how it can treat anti-depression uh, and uh, it can also be used for PTSD, among a bunch of different things. And so we, we talk about that. We talk about uh, co-founding all those different companies, his view on New York as a as a venture landscape and how it's kind of changed over the years. So uh, one of my favorite conversations, just given the breadth of experience that he's had and the depth of perspective. So really appreciate him coming on. I trust everyone's going to enjoy this discussion with Kevin. But before we get into that, just this is the moment in the podcast where I would normally shill Athletic Greens. Instead of doing so, I am uh, just asking people to like, subscribe, share, all that usual stuff. We do this just to grow the podcast. We don't try to hit you with advertising. So if everyone can do that, uh, we really appreciate all the support. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening in. Now, my conversation with Kevin Ryan from Alley Corp and co-founder of a bunch of different businesses. Kevin Ryan, thanks for doing this. Happy to be here. I, uh, I've heard your name in this ecosystem. So I've been in New York now for... 13 years. I guess I grew up outside the city as well, but I've heard your name for a long time. So it's a pleasure to finally uh, get together and do this. Yes. So uh, I, I guess one of the interesting things that you've lived through, so you, you joined into the internet when that was getting going, right? Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about- 1996. Double click and uh, the run up, fallout. And yeah. I, I do want to talk about parallels between mm -hmm. between uh, that experience. But uh, you, you, you've been through bubbles, crashes, good times, bad. I guess what, what what do you think of the state of the market right now? What, what advice are you giving to your founders? What does this remind you of at this current second? So first of all, I think that the market today is better than people realize. It's definitely not as good as it was a year and a half ago. And I think those valuations were too high and they were not sustainable. And so in the long term, that doesn't work. We are not at all in a true downturn. You know, in 2001, there was no money. And so people had to survive. Good companies went bankrupt. That's not happening today. You know, we had... 10 companies raised money in the second half of last year, and eight of them raised money. Uh, we had to fund one, and one went under. That's perfectly, that's good. That's a really good market. Um, so I'm not concerned about that uh, at all. From it, a behavior standpoint, by the way, there being no money, mm -hmm. just to draw the contrast yeah. between this and that, uh, there was yeah. money, right, uh, theoretically. For, and firms ended up cutting. Yeah. Redpoint actually cut the, the fund size. Yeah. Excel cut the fund size. Battery cut the fund size. So a lot of people cut the fund size. When, when there was no money back then, mm -hmm. in a very literal sense, there still were funds. Were people yeah. just cowering and saying, hey, don't talk to me? Yeah. And was that the difference? It was, it, yeah, part of it was actually driven by LPs were telling their fund, in theory, you can call this money. Don't call this money. And there were LPs. There were important institutions out there that didn't have cash. Mm. And so they said, 
don't call it, or which is the denominator effect of all this of, hey, their, exactly. their public markets have gone down to you know near zero. And yeah. now if you call this capital, we're going to be 50% weighted to venture yeah. and we don't want that. Well, and people forget that VC funds don't have money. Yes. LPs have money. Yes. We have, we, have, we have some portion of money that we've called that's sitting in a bank yeah. account, but it's a very small percentage of theoretically what we yeah. have access to. And it runs out in two months or three months. It runs out in two months. We call it when we yeah. need it theoretically versus the LPs have committed to us to give us yes. the money. So if they're saying, don't call this money, yeah. then you, you know, if you want to have a longstanding relationship with those exactly. funds, you're not going to call. Okay. So that was the distinction there. Yeah. So that was very different. And there were lots of people who didn't have a job for nine months. That's not true today. Uh, there's 3.4% unemployment. So things are pretty good. There's just less capital than there was. And at the high end, prices are down. Um, but it's, it's not unsustainable. I, I don't feel bad about where we are at all. I also feel like there's still tons of great things happening. You know, more people are willing to quit their job and start a company today than, it, than there was the case in 2001. You know, there was just a lack of confidence. Everyone had thrown in the towel. All stock prices were down 95%. That's not the case today. So, so DoubleClick was ultimately a $3.1 billion sale to Google 2007, yeah. right? Uh, maybe, maybe take us through your journey of, of ending up there in the internet. Like what, what, uh, what drew you to the internet originally? How'd you find DoubleClick? So I was working in 94, 95, uh, beginning 96 for a, uh, a EW Scripts, which was a media company. As part of my responsibility there, I was the CFO and COO. We started a website, and the website was actually, ironically this week, the Dilbert website, uh, which became very, very successful. We sold advertising, we sold e-commerce super early on. Were I you went working to, with Scott Adams at the time? Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and didn't see any uh, weird uh, yeah. behavior. Uh, he was incredibly funny and incredibly fast, uh, so that's what I saw at the time. Hmm. Um, but anyway, we, uh, so we did this, and I started to feel like this internet thing was going to be huge, which sounds very obvious today, but in 95 was less obvious. Went to the parent company and said, we should really invest a lot more in the internet. They weren't certain about that. And so then I thought, you know, beginning 96, I'm going to go off on my own and do something, start a company. I thought it might be like a DoubleClick company. And so I ran into the founders of DoubleClick. They had started four months before, had a great technology tool that I didn't know how to develop. And they said, why don't you come join us? And so I joined them as CFO for a few minutes, then president, and then later CEO. Can, can you take us to like seeing this internet thing is going to be big? And yeah. I think there's there's parallels in, in my career, my early venture career. There was mobile, right, and yeah. kind of understanding what the derivatives of it, of it were. Yeah. And yes, there were there was a lot of linear lines you could draw mm -hmm. to it. Like, hey, uh, okay, mobile apps are going to get big, and probably more companies are going to have it. And then there were uh, some of the stuff that happened on top that was mm -hmm. unexpected, right? WhatsApp, for example, yeah. and, and ultimately Facebook pivoting to mobile and whatever. We can go through all the laundry list of stuff that mobile enabled, Uber, Airbnb, all that stuff. Uh, what was, at that point in time, like, hey, I think this internet thing's going to be big, uh, was, that, was that an inevitability that was kind of mainstream among people? Or was that a uh, kind of poetical view that, hey, this is actually going to be disruptive or transformative to all businesses? Because if you think about it, mobile created a ton of value, but yep. a lot of it was to the incumbents, right? Yes. The internet created a lot of value. And it was a lot of net new value, yep. right? It was, it was Google, it was Amazon, it was Facebook, it was some of the iconic names in the, in the, in the world yep. were started at that point in time. So what was that like in the early days? So the, yeah, the most important thing I saw was that just in 95 and then 96, people were actually getting onto the internet and were starting to use it. And so I can remember hearing construction workers uh, saying, oh my God, I bought something online or I did something and thinking, everyone's gonna be doing this, everyone's gonna be doing this. And, and it's just so obvious today that it's hard to imagine that that wasn't the case at the time. And so every, every quarter you'd be telling me I'm using a new site 
for dating, to buy shoes, to do something. And they were clunky, they weren't perfect, but the, the use case was just so obvious. I mean, you could connect so many people. And so commerce and advertising seemed to me the biggest things that would be happening. And so I just felt incredibly bullish about that. And, and was that, uh, did people within the uh, media company agree with you uh, on? No. There was one line they, they came to me and said, uh, you know, this, there's, yes, the internet is happening right now, but there's probably going to be a new internet. And what, like, what did that even mean? They didn't know what that meant either. Yeah, got it. What they really meant, though, was that in we, 94, the phenomenon was, were CD-ROMs. And so that created multiple companies worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Because it's true, you could send a whole set of CD-ROMs for fitness, for all kinds of things. Sure. It was better than what we had before. And then that went down because obviously the internet was a much better idea. And so that sort of collapsed, the value came down. And so they just thought there'd be some new thing that would be happening, but didn't know what it was. Interesting. Yeah, I remember my high school, uh, or sorry, middle school at the time, invested in LaserDisc. And that was like, they, they probably spent, yeah. I don't know, $50,000 <laughs> to equip it with LaserDisc. And that was a funny thing. But yeah. some of those businesses on the CD-ROM side, like Concur started as a CD-ROM business. Yeah. Some of them actually ended up pivoting to internet or, or whatever made it through. So you found the double-click Guys, I yep. assume the ecosystem in New York was pretty Tiny. small. Tiny. 50 people. I mean, it was the same 50 people. Scott Heiferman was involved. He eventually started Meetup, but he was running yep. an agency at the time. Uh, so there were a bunch of people. There were, there were alumni, alumni from AOL who were floating around because that was a real mm -hmm. company at the time. Um, and CompuServe. Oh, interesting. And so, so DoubleClick, maybe uh, tell people what DoubleClick yeah. did. So the, the beginning product of DoubleClick was just saying, there's going to be many sites selling advertising. They're all too small. If we put them together in a network, it creates a product that made sense. It was just a big ad network. And we had dynamic ad technology, which made that work. So I could reach you on one site, but see you on another site, and realize that wait, I'm only gonna show you this ad three times and cap that, which was very powerful. And we could do some targeting as well. So then we could have 10 sites that all were interested in technology, and then go to, a, go to Oracle and say, why don't you buy ads, and we'll run them across the technology sites. And so that helped uh, tons of sites. And so we were doing $500 million in revenue after four or five years, which was a staggering amount at that time. Well, you joined at 10 people, is that yeah. right, roughly? And the company had only been around for six, six months. months. Yeah. And two years later, public. Yeah. So crazy, crazy increase. We, you know, four years after I joined, we had 2,000 people in 25 countries. And yeah, we went public, you know, 18 months after I joined. So at that point, we had about 180 people. Uh, it, it, we had gone really, really quickly. The reason DoubleClick today is still the dominant player in all ad technology, although it's part of Google, is because we moved faster than everyone else did during that time. We raised money, we executed. That, that was, you know, especially the time in New York had never been done before. It, it's an interesting thread of, uh, I assume other people had that insight at yep. the time, right? And so who, who were the competitors and was it really, uh, I mean, you rode the right wave, yeah. but was it hand-to-hand -hand combat in terms of just funding and, and beating people to getting the aggregation and the scale so that you could do it across the different websites? Absolutely. First of all, the core was that we actually had a better product and a better technology product. And that's because my co-founders had deep technical backgrounds and were incredibly brilliant. And then we did move faster. Uh, we were able to raise money. People believed in us. We went public faster. We were competing with companies like 24-7 um, who ended up going public and were worth significantly less than we were, but we're out there. The challenge in 98, 99 was there were 37 competitors. Mm. And so everyone, our competitors were giving away the product. Uh, it made it much tougher. And so when actually everything crashed, I always tell people, on the one hand, you know, we lost a lot of uh, business, but we lost all of our competitors. 
And so we ended up with the 60% market share, dominant position, huge profit margins, which they still have today, even though it's 25 years later. So peak valuation at the top of the bubble 13 was- 13 billion. 13 billion. And, and people need to remember that that was a big number at the time. Sure. I mean, no one here had done that. You know, Caterpillar was worth 15 billion at the time. So that was an enormous, enormous number. So internet bubble hits. Yeah. 75% of your customers yeah, go bankrupt? 70% of our clients go bankrupt progressively over two years. Uh, while leaving us with the bill every single time, uh, you know, brutal time. So we did seven rounds of layoffs. In the beginning, we didn't think it would be that bad. We thought, oh, you know, it'll be okay, one round of layoff. And when you do the seventh round, you know, it's just, it's debilitating for the company, for morale. Uh, everyone was so excited at 13 billion, now we're down at like 600 million. Uh, it's a very tough time. What was the peak employee size? 2,000. 2,000, okay. So you, so you had 2,000 people and you see this is correcting the, yeah. in, the initial signs of warning and I guess sort of drawing some parallels to today for yeah. people. What, uh, what did you see at the time and what, what were the incremental like, you know, things that happened along the way that made you, need, oh, this is getting worse, this is getting worse, this is You know, worse. it was really more just a progressive, you know, decline. Because there was no VC funding, because most companies in our space didn't make money, eventually they just went out of business. And so that just meant fewer, fewer clients, fewer, less money. I mean, just you know, brutal. I mean, very, very tough time. So if what we've seen right now continues for two years and you know, 70% of companies go out of business, then it'll be comparable, but it's not anywhere close to them. Yeah, and I guess the seventy percent—it was also a—it uh, was a little bit circular or all intertwined, right? Yeah. That you were selling to those people by and like, large, right? And so if they went out of business, so seven rounds of layoffs. I assume you uh, you got you developed a skill set that you probably never wanted to develop yeah. of how to lay people off. Anything yeah. that you uh, that you learned from that that would be helpful for people if they you need know, to do it? No different than what everyone has always said, which is you're just trying to do it as humanely as possible, as fairly as possible. Um, what we learned, though, is in the beginning, at, at the end of the first round, I said, look, you know, we're done. We're finished. We've done our layoffs. It's the right thing to do. And then had to go back three months later uh, and say, actually, we're not done. And so that, that saying that, now I don't say anything. I never commit anything long term. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. If a satellite hits the world, we'll have a different conversation. And I don't know what's going to happen. So I felt like I had to go back to people and sort of say I was wrong. And people are wondering, well, were you lying? Did you know? There's a, there's a lack of trust from everyone because no one saw this coming and everyone, everyone blames you. Every decision we made in 99 and 2000 looked terrible a year later. I signed a huge lease because I needed space for 2,000 people, which then was empty. Rates came down. You know, I acquired companies. That looked dumb. Every new hire I made looked ridiculous. Uh, so... It's 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 a humbling experience. The 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 old adage of, mm -hmm. of measure twice, cut once mm -hmm. in this. Like each incremental point, would you ever have been able to bundle those together? Uh, having thought about it now, if you were to go through it again, would you have cut deeper initially, or was it just too hard to know? It was it was too incremental along the way. I mean, it all depends. If you know the future, yeah. you should definitely do that. Um, but you don't. If I said to you, what's the stock market or the real estate market going to look like in two years? You have a theory. But I always remind people, we're sitting here a year and a half ago, we probably wouldn't have talked about the three most important things that have probably happened, which is the war in Ukraine, you know, most of us didn't see coming, uh, the rise in inflation we didn't see coming, this tech crash, people didn't see it completely coming, and all those impact. So you just have to react. When you're fighting for market share with other people and realize you're in a business where being the biggest matters, you have to go all out. You can't worry about it. 
you know, did Uber make the right move by becoming the number one player? Did they waste money along the, on the way in retrospect? Yes. But you know what? Would you rather be Uber or Lyft? Yeah. You'd rather be Uber. And so they did what they needed to do. And from a business point of view, it was the right thing to do. And then at some point when the music stops, yeah, you may have to make cuts. One interesting thing I've heard you say about layoffs <laughs> is that there's, there's also a need after you do it. You, you actually had to fire people as well, uh, separate from the layoffs, because psychologically yeah. those people were, they, they just weren't able to keep going yeah. with the mission, right? Yeah. And so how did, how did that actually play out that, that some executives, like after the third or fourth round of layoffs, maybe uh, capacity-wise you would have wanted to keep them around or capability-wise, but they were just too dejected and couldn't keep yeah. going? They needed to do something different. They just, they didn't believe anymore. And I understand it's a hard thing to believe in when you're you know, going back and cutting really great people. Who, and you know, it's not like today. You let someone go today, they're gonna have a job in two months. You know, they're gonna be fine. Here, you're like, you're not gonna have a job. You know, probably for six months. In fact, I don't know when you're gonna have a job. There are no jobs out there. Uh, so that's very rough. And so you just were in a better position by saying, you know what, I think you need to step down. Uh, and you're number two, who doesn't feel the responsibility of all the layoffs, super excited to be number one. It's a stretch job for them. They're gonna be like, you know what? I'm gonna kill it here. This is gonna be great. And they're a better person to have at that moment. The battlefield promotion rather than the, yeah. the person that's done it before just because they're excited and energized to go yeah. to go at it. Now, you weren't the founder of DoubleClick, no. although you were there super early. Uh, having gone from CFO to president to then CEO, was there, was there an element, to some extent our founders have the credibility mm -hmm. of, hey, we, this, we were there from day zero, yeah. it came from nothing, and so the ability to look everyone in the eyes and say, say hey, you know, I, I, I messed up and, and all of that. Was, that, was there a difference at all in not being the founder CEO in your you mind? Know, or? I don't think so, because first of all, people who came in you know, three years in realized that you know, I had been there for like 95% of the company. Yeah. And so, and I thought of myself as a founder, although I'm technically not. We were incredibly close, the three of us. Uh, so I don't find there's any difference. I think there's actually this myth of only the founder really understands things. And Silicon Valley has always encouraged that. And I don't actually think that's true. In fact, we've talked about Mongo. Uh, David Tichiria is the CEO. I you know, hired him as chairman. He's incredible. Yeah, fantastic, and better than anyone we would have had in the beginning, and the right person for the right time. He's been there for seven years and has you know, added incredible value. Yeah, D Dave is one of the more, at some point we'll get Dave to come on here, yep. but uh, one of the more impressive CEOs, leaders mm -hmm. I, I, I've, I've ever been around. I, I, as well, I mean, you got to know Larry and Sergey around the same mm -hmm. time, yep. right? And they, they obviously had this insight that was only incrementally better yep. uh, than the next best competitor. But that incrementality was all the difference in the Absolutely. world, right? What In the early days, they were the ultimate acquirer of DoubleClick uh, after a few years, after the internet bubble and all that stuff came back around. Well, actually, if you start at the beginning, they were we were a much bigger company than they were <laughs> in 98, and we sold their first ads. So when I was talking to them, they had 60 people, and you know, we had 1,000. And so it was very early on, and you know they they were super smart and have been obviously incredibly successful. But for me, are an example. They didn't necessarily have a vision for outside of search. They developed that in the same way that someone else who wasn't a founder could have developed that. When you met people at that mm -hmm. point in time, like meeting Larry and Sergey, did you did you say, "Hey, this is different," or you're like, "Hey, those are smart guys, and maybe they'll figure it out." No, I, I don't think it was completely obvious that that company would be more successful than others. The hindsight bias that ultimately happens is yeah. like people try to pattern match against things that have happened in the past, but yeah. 
often these people don't look anything no. like what they then become. And in the 90s, everyone met everyone. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm still around, uh, but you know, you know, Bezos was there. I met Elon Musk when he was 27. He was doing Zip2. <laughs> it wasn't even uh, doing PayPal. Um, Larry and Sergey. Uh, no, the person I think who's always been unbelievably impressive from day one is Jeff Bezos. I mean, so good, such long-term vision, uh, you know, a true independent thinker. How did you psychologically shift to that, uh, Ben Horowitz calls it the wartime CEO mm-hmm. mindset. Was there, were there things you had to do at a personal level to kind of gear up to be able to make all those layoffs, to keep plowing ahead? Because uh, you still had a bit, I mean, $600 million, yeah. it sounded like a bottomed out yeah. at, but you were probably still doing, what What was the low of revenue? Yeah, so we were still doing four or $500 million so in revenue. So you had a business. And we always had cash. Yeah. I had actually, luckily or skillfully, raised a tremendous amount of cash. So there was never a risk of going out of business. It was just how ugly it was going to get. So for me, I actually didn't think of it that different. You know, when you're growing from zero to 2,000 people in four years, that's a different wartime. That's just an expand, land grab, making decisions every, every second, moving quickly, losing, winning. And you're just doing the same thing on the downside. So one of my strengths and weaknesses is I don't take it all that personally. And so these are just different business challenges. And so you just have to stay rational and do the best you can and realize you've, you know, if like you were playing poker, it's a, it's a new hand. And so you're going to play that next hand, even though it's worse than the last hand, the best you can. What about expectation setting with the investors, right? So you had to do it internally and externally. Yeah. Were, you, were you trying to set different levels of expectation with them? Because I imagine yeah. at some point the, uh, the hedge funds that bought in the IPO weren't yeah. thrilled with you, as, or whoever bought at $13 billion probably wasn't thrilled with you at $600 million. You can, you know, Out of all this, though, you can never actually take all that personally what investors think in the public markets. You know, they're happy to sell your shares in two months if it goes up 20%. That's, that's their business. That's what they do. They don't fundamentally, most, the vast majority, uh, didn't care about your long-term business, weren't thinking about it. Um, so that's not, it just can't be one of the drivers. My, my drivers are my employees and my customers. Mm. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about because that's what creates long-term value. So the nadir of all of this was what year? Probably 2003. 2003, $600 million valuation, yep. doing a couple hundred million in revenue. And then you start to see light yep. at the end of the tunnel. What were the signs that it was changing? Oh, you're just seeing companies uh, that you hadn't heard of start to become very large. Mm. And their ad volumes going up. And the one thing that always made me feel better during the entire downturn is if it weren't for the stock price, um, fundamental business was great. If you ask me, Kevin, this is really grim. You must be terrible. You must be horrible. I'd say, but ad volume grew 150% last year. And that was true in 2001, 2002, 2003, because more and more people were coming online and they were looking at things they were buying. Pricing came down. But the fundamentals, did the dogs like the dog food? The answer was yes. If I saw that ending, then it was time to throw in the towel. But it, nothing, it, it, there was never a moment where I thought, the internet's not gonna be big. We're not gonna, it's gonna become so much more important. We're gonna buy more things. I mean, I, I, sold to 100 people in 96, 97 when I was raising money that internet advertising would be $3 billion by 2000 because it was $50 million in 95. And you know, now it's $60 billion. There's never been a moment where I didn't think that was going to happen. The path of progress was all along the way. It was just a question Always. of when and valuation. Did yeah. you actually stop checking the stock price? Would you do it on a... Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, you, you know it's there because you're the CEO, sure. but um, it's just you don't control it. And look, it was insane on the way up. It was insane on the way down. But, you know, we ended up building a company that is fundamental to the internet even today. 
and the product is good, which is why we won, and we moved quickly, and that's what you want to do. And I think Mongo's the same way. I think Business Insider is actually the same way. Mm. I want to talk about the, those two businesses, but the exit itself, what, what, what made the decision that that was the right time and the right buyer for Google? So I left when we sold it to a private equity firm in 2005. Hellman and Friedman. <clears throat> yeah. And so at that point, our stock price was so undervalued that by selling it, we got a 50% premium. Got it. I, what was the exit uh, price at that point? A billion. A billion. Got it. And the founders, we didn't actually want to sell the company. Uh, but it's very hard to turn down a 50% you know, premium. Uh, Those public market investors, I, I assume they, they- And the board as well, yeah. the outside board members. And you know, in a way they were wrong, not intentionally, no knew who knew, but the market was on its way up. And over the next three years, 2005, 2008, everyone's valuation went up a lot. Yes, the H&F and JMI guys got some multiple appreciation that ultimately yeah. occurred, having exited in 2007, yeah. rather yeah. than what they probably would have got six months later or 12 months later in 2008 or something yeah. like that. So uh, it was a good sale at the time. It was a good sale ultimately. And today, that company would be worth $20 billion. Sure. Uh, so, so then Alicorp, was yeah. that actually incorporated? Like, what was it in the early days? Because you went on a pretty prolific spree of founding companies. Yeah. So Mongo uh, and Business Insider, yeah. I think, were two and of guilt, the first. And Gilt. Gilt, yeah. those all are all around the same time? Yeah. Yeah, so what happened was, um, at the time, Dwight, who had been the CTO and co-founder of DoubleClick, and I decided we wanted to start new companies. And so we came up with one idea, and then we came up with another idea. We didn't have a strategy yet, but in the very beginning stages, we could actually do more than one company, which no one thinks you can do, and we decided we thought you could do that. Um, Dwight spent most of his time on Mongo. I spent more of my time on Business Insider and Gilt. I was chairman of all three. Um, and it turns out that all three were in very different businesses, and all three were quite successful. And so that was a real learning experience. Uh, for three years, I didn't start a new company because I stepped in to be CEO of Gilt. Gilt you know, did $175 million in its second year. Still no one's ever done it in New York. It was a phenomenon. And so I needed to actually be the CEO to manage that growth. And then I hired a CEO to replace me and started Zola the next week. And then have since then started more and more companies and invested in more and more companies. Was uh, the initial, were there any models that you looked to at, in the early days or was it just like, hey, we can do this and we have the money to do it, so we might as well? Yeah, no, it was more that just opportunistically made sense. Um, we had ideas, we thought we should do it and we believed that we could do it without being the CEO. And so how did that evolve? So, so you had those three and then four. And today, maybe, how would you describe Alicorp today? Yeah, so Alicorp today just does a lot more of that. It's more of a more, much more institutional firm that does that. So we start about eight companies a year and we invest in about 30 companies a year. So we invest you know, about $100 million a year into those two buckets. And so I have a team of 28 people and separately 60 engineers that work for Alicorp are on my payroll and that are there to help us build those companies. Uh, and so we really are company builders, either ones we started or ones we are their first investor in. And no uh, uh, institutional outside capital? So as of now, we have no institutional outside capital. It's just my account. You say as of now, maybe at some point as no, you guys- we may, We're gonna look into whether we will raise a fund at some point, but to date we haven't. Got it, so, so you're launching these companies. How are you actually coming up with the different ideas? So we do, you know, most people, the number one question I get at business school is how do you come up with eight ideas a year? And when I say to you, have you spent 200 hours on your idea? Most people are like, well, no, I think about it in the shower once in a while. I'm like, that's not gonna get you there. So we are doing deep dives at any one time. So for example, we've been doing a deep dive in assisted fertility over the last two months. So, you know, more women are having children later, gay men are having money to have children, 
firm counts are down. A lot of reasons why I think more people are going to need help over the next 10 years uh, having children. So we then have 50 interviews. You know, people have gone through the process, OBGYNs, data providers, the whole ecosystem. And we try, one of three things will happen. We come up with an idea that we want to start because we really do know this industry by now. We keep hearing about a company that looks really great that's early stage. We try and invest in that. Or we have nothing and we move on. So we're doing, uh, we did a deep dive in that. We just did one in, uh, we're doing one in the maritime industry right now. Uh, we're doing one in organoids. Oh, what are organoids? So organoids is a fascinating thing. So uh, imagine that in a Petri dish, essentially, we could create the beginnings of your esophagus. Not to put the esophagus in your body, but because when J&J &J wants to test a new drug on an esophagus, right now they have to find 50 people and stick it in your esophagus which has risk, incredible costs. You gotta recruit people, who wants to do that? Very, imagine they could test it right now in the Petri dish. That would revolutionize, you know, the testing of drugs and drop the cost maybe down by 90%. Fascinating, we happen to have a relationship with a very important person in this space. Um, so we're looking into that to see if we're gonna go down that path. Those are just three very different examples of things we're doing deep dives in and may end up as companies. What, where do they tend to come from? Maritime's a very different yeah. industry than uh, organoids, They're right? all completely different. So all of us, and it used to be seven years ago, just me. So, you know, Business Insider and Gilt were my ideas. Um, but now uh, they come from everyone on the team. And that's what we hire people to do, to come in and want to look into things. We're talking to people all the time. We're thinking about fundamental trends. We'd like to have things that are gonna grow over the next 10 years. Uh, but that's the intellectual part of what we do, which is, which is different. It takes much more time than just seeing a business plan come in, spending two weeks on it and saying, sure, let's do it. We have to, company, we have to create this from scratch. And, and so you get to the point of, you do all this research, and then you get to the point that you validate there's an idea yeah. here. Yeah. What's the next step? Because I've heard you say that you, you ultimately want to uh, raise institutional capital on the promise rather than the metrics mm -hmm. of it. So what, what happens after you come up with one of these ideas? Yeah. So let's say you and I have an idea, we have a 40-page deck, we feel good to go. We then say, okay, we're gonna pull the trigger, which means we're gonna put roughly a million and a half dollars into the company. We're gonna generally hire a CEO. Sometimes we actually don't start with the CEO, we start with the head of product. Uh, but let's assume we start with the CEO. And then over the next nine months, we're gonna build out the management team and we're gonna start building the product. And so if that's a consumer product, hopefully we're gonna launch and show some traction. If it's a B2B product, we'll have initial customers. And then at the right moment, we'll go out and raise $5 million round from someone, from a red point uh, or someone else. And because we've de-risked it in their mind. Hmm. You know, now I see the team, I like the team, I see the idea, I see the traction. And now just like any other company. And, and raising at a local maximum of where the potential is highest, but the, the metrics and all of that are still on the come. Yeah. It's an interesting sort of psychological point. Yeah, but it depends. Sometimes, sometimes we need to show like in B2B in healthcare, we need to show that we have a contract or two. Like the payers are gonna to wanna to pay for this. Uh, so we'll often wait till that point to do it. We're just trying to de-risk it for the people out there. And so once you even have two contracts, you've established pricing, you establish that people like it. Now we're just debating how many people are gonna like it. But that's very different than just a PowerPoint presentation.
how do you think about uh, idea versus market mm-hmm. versus uh, I guess tailwinds sort of fit into the idea and yeah. the market versus the the people that or the, the early founding team? Like what, what's the weighing on all that? Yeah, so it, I mean, it depends. Obviously you'd like to have a market that's gonna grow. If this fertility will grow, like we're very deep in robotics. There's 0% chance there are not more robots 10 years from now than today. So you do have wind at your back. But more important is just this specific idea. You know, when I started Zola Wedding Registry, there were many registries. Everyone had a registry. And so yeah, I didn't have the wind in my back, but I had a product idea that was my idea that I thought was much better. And, and the existing registries had not realized that you didn't want plates and glasses anymore. You actually wanted yoga classes or Knicks tickets or honeymoon or a whole bunch of things that Bloomingdale's doesn't sell. Yeah, Bloomingdale's just offered you what they sell, not what did you want. And so that was a pretty good realization. And then the second part was I, you know, the team is incredible. They're all ex-guilt. And so now that, you know, we've done a million different weddings uh, since then. Now, now, some of the other greatest hits, and we've touched on a bunch of them, but Mongo was yep. one of the first one $15 billion company today, yep. I think got up to 40 yep. last year. Uh, obviously, David Terry, amazing CEO. What was the original insight there? Mm-hmm. And coming up with um, <laughs> Wedding Registry or Business yep. Insider or, or Guilds, while not easy uh, by any means, it, uh, it requires a business intuition yep. and some of those insights uh, this requires that same intuition, but at an IP technical Deep level tech, as yeah. well. So I couldn't have done that on my own. The fact that I did it with my two co-founders, Dwight, the, the CTO of DoubleClick, and Elliot Horowitz, who was the most brilliant young engineer at DoubleClick. So out of 700 people, he was the up-and-coming LeBron James that you could just see. And so the three of us uh, wanted to do it. I knew the business problem that when I looked through all the money we spent at DoubleClick, the, the money we regretted was database cost, that it wasn't scaling, it was incredibly expensive. 17 uh, you know, consultants had to come in to install something. It just didn't make sense. And it wasn't the right database for the future when data had changed from relational to non-relational. But Dwight, I, I bet that's, that's high level. Dwight and Elliot sat there and thought, you know, we can build this. We know how to build it and can do it. There are very, very few people who can build it. That's true technology. I mean, today, a billion dollars has gone into R&D at Mongo over the course of the history. That's why it's a successful company. And we had to be able to muscle it through because we started in 2008. There wasn't, it wasn't a great time. And we had no revenue for three years. Zero. And so funding that is hard. And that's why there, aren't, there weren't that many database companies at the time. Funny, it, I, I've heard you say, was like your high school dating career a little bit. Re- yeah. Rejection, rejection, hostile rejection. Yeah, hostile rejection. Followed by, if you were the last company on earth, I still wouldn't invest in you. Yes. <laughs> so, so, that, that, uh, so the insight at that point in time was, hey, we're moving from relational yep. and kind of SQL-based to the, this no yep. SQL and structured data. Uh, but no one had database backgrounds, yeah. right? This wasn't, no. we're, we're investors in Snowflake. Like Snowflake, uh, they, they came out of Oracle, right? Yes. You know, like that. But this wasn't no. that. This was, hey, these are bright people. And I think in general, I mean, it sort of seems like that's a theme for you of taking, um, drawing on experiences from other industries and porting it into whatever specific domain uh, yeah. of it. Was that, was that a skepticism in the early days? And how did you think about like, hey, this is so different than DoubleClick, although DoubleClick, I'm sure, had tons of IP and these people yeah. were very bright. Yeah, we had real technology. It's just that people tended to think that if you hadn't worked in databases, you couldn't understand them. And I think people generally overvalue narrow expertise so that you know, if you've worked in uh, some sort of financial product that you just can't learn another industry. 
most industries, you know, are, aren't that complicated. If you spend four months, I mean, I don't understand black holes and deep things like that, but trying to understand how does the furniture industry work or how does something else work, it's not that complicated. And so I think that, that, that what people have not noticed is that most of the consumer internet companies that are very successful were almost always started by someone from a startup, but not from that domain. Hmm. You know, did the, did the people who started Uber come from the taxi industry? Did the people who started Airbnb come from the hotel industry? No. There were many people who should have understood that problem better. I mean, even Business Insider, none of us had a media background. Guilt, none of us had a fashion background. But we can understand it. It's just we understand the problems that our clients have and what you're looking for. And so sometimes you're coming from outside and saying, I don't understand why this doesn't work. And one of the things I've said in the past is that when I have a new idea, I have to remember that the people who are going to hate it the most are the ones who are closest to it. Who in theory know, like everyone I talked to at Wall Street Journal told me no one wanted what Business Insider was, was, was selling because they just weren't wrapped up in their own product. Well, and their career is beholden to some extent mm. to the success of, of that. And, yeah. and, and statistically, it's actually probably true if you talk to most experts, right? And that's yeah. sort of the, the uh, change management disruption type thing is actually statistically the probability of Business mm. Insider success mm. was low enough yep. that it actually didn't make sense for Wall Street Journal yes. to pivot and go in that direction yep. until there were the incremental proof points around it. But I always remember going into Barney's when it existed, uh, beginning at Guilt, and going to the salesperson, and the store was almost empty, and saying, by the way, so are a lot of your customers shopping online? And he said, absolutely not. None of my customers shop online. It's completely overrated. And I remember thinking, maybe that's why the store is empty. Yeah. <laughs> because your customers are shopping in the store, totally. and there aren't that many of them. And so that's what people don't see is the people they're not talking to. The self-selection of, of what your data points are around yeah. you, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so in terms of uh, Mongo in the early days, the original name was Tengen, yeah. right? And so uh, you made a decision to be open source from mm -hmm. the start, hence yeah. why no revenue for a yeah. while. What was that? At that point in time, there, I mean, Red Hat's mm -hmm. sort of the canonical example for a long time. That was it, only, was, it was in our, our, our deck and the only one. And so our whole point was, you know, they were, they were you know, very successful. They were doing a billion dollars in revenue at the time. And we were going after a bigger market. They were operating systems. We were going after databases. The challenge was we were forced to go open source because there was no way for our product to be good enough that you would pay a ton of money. And was open source a distribution strategy in that case or a uh, wisdom of the crowds and the ability to QA things? We never thought that many people would contribute to the product, but they did and helped a little bit. No, it was more that... It was open source, but it really a, a different way of calling it would be freemium. That we wanted many, many people to use the database and play with it, which gave us feedback, which taught them about it. And then often a guy who worked at, let's say, you know, Goldman Sachs would use it for his own website at home for a year. And then he'd be like, wow, this works great. Maybe I should bring it in to Goldman Sachs. That's, that's how it worked. We just needed thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people to use it. And the original insight was, Cloud computing, right? Uh, something yes. that was broader. And yeah. so, I mean, one of the things we talk a lot about is like uh, staying sort of refined and narrow and solving a very specific problem. Uh, and then you get the right to win and expand sort of wallet share from there. Uh, this sort of the opposite. And Oops. then you had to end up there. Maybe take us through that journey. Yeah, many people have a pivot. This was not a pivot at all. We started trying to do everything. This was throwing stuff out. It, you know, with cloud computing, which was the right conclusion and not, not obvious in 2007, 2008. But we were going to build a database as well as many other things. And then realized that one, 
we were, the problem was bigger than we thought. We were never gonna be able to do all these things. Two, we weren't gonna be able to raise the capital to do them, yeah. certainly at that time. And it was gonna take many, many years. And, you know, Dwight and Elliot felt like we were, had breakthroughs on the database side. And it was a huge market in and of itself. And so we should just focus on that. And so we bet the company on not doing anything else and just focusing on that. And the funding journey there was, uh, you, you got all this distribution. It took off yep. like wildfire. Uh, and there wasn't a clear business model. You could point at Red Hat and say, hey, they yeah. figured out how to make money. Someday Maybe we charge. can figure out how to make money. And so what was the journey on the, the funding side as well? And you didn't step in as CEO. Were, were Dwight or Elliot ever CEO? So technically, Dwight was the CEO for the first two years because it's really just a development project. I mean, if you're not coding every day, there was really nothing to do. And so we had a team, a small team. We were constrained by capital. You know, Dwight and I funded in the beginning. Union Square Ventures came in. Albert Wenger understood it from day one and was hugely valuable. Uh, Flybridge came in, and they came in only because he had worked at Greylock, uh, Chip Hazard, and had done very well with us, and so thought he'd do it. But we raised money in very low valuations. Oh, Chip was at Greylock yeah. and an investor in DoubleClick? Yeah. Oh, funny, I didn't know that. He worked on the, on the double deal, and I think it may have helped uh, give him a down payment for his house, and so, uh, when he was associate. And so, uh, Eddie, he's an amazing guy, still on the oh, board. Oh, totally, yeah. Uh, and has, has been a real contributor there, so it's been great. So we. You know, muscled it through. But, you know, in retrospect, when you think about it, here we were the team that had started the most successful company in the history of the internet in Europe yeah. and still had trouble raising money. You know, real trouble raising money. We got it done a little bit slower. Then eventually the traffic numbers just looked overwhelming. Sequoia came in, then NEA came in. We raised a lot of money and then it went public. Yeah, it, it was interesting because I remember <laughs> the journey of that, uh, the business itself uh, was. It was, it sounds like it was difficult in the early days. And then Sequoia came in, the numbers were through the roof, right? And then the question of the business model started to come up and it was probably a little harder at some point. Like yeah. the, the round before public was uh, 1.3 billion yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't totally clear how big that was going to go because right. there was this little bit of disconnect between how good of a business it was versus the utility that it was providing. Yeah. And obviously now, we, we were talking a little bit about this before, but it's uh, what Mongo Atlas and Dave's uh, and team have been able to do around that. I mean, it's it's an absolute rocket ship. Yeah, that company will, I, and I have no inside information. I've been off the board for three years, but I think that company is going to grow for the next 10 years. You know, it's just a big market. It's you can't have three guys in a garage duplicate a billion dollars of R and D, and we had very very smart people there, and so it has just grown at forty percent, you know, roughly for like eight years in a row. It's amazing how much uh, you can get wrapped around the axle about the the minutia, mm -hmm. and probably at each yeah. point along the way, there was a venture firm, probably ours, that oh. talked themselves out of it because the. Hey, this is support revenue, not software yeah. revenue, right? Hey, how are they going to be monetized? Hey, is this CEO, whoever it was at the time, yeah. actually going to be the person to make it? And ultimately, if you ride that tailwind and you're right about the important concept, it's in we the were, path of progress. I mean, no, we were turned down by everyone. Everyone, yeah. Everyone. Definitely us. <laughs> yeah. Everyone at least once, but sometimes three times. Uh, because it wasn't obvious. We didn't have the background. Uh, it was a new business model, and it was a new technology. So those are three huge things to, to get over. Yeah. Now, Business Insider, another yep. big hit, another initial yep. one. That was one of the ones out of the gate, basically. Yep, absolutely. And what was the insight there? Oh, and now people forget that in 2007, you know, Business Week and Wall Street Journal did not update their websites during the day. Because it was difficult. It would probably hurt their print business, right? They thought about the print business. First, they'd always been on this schedule. I mean, every journalist in the world wrote their articles at night, and then it came out the next morning. And so that was just how things worked. 
And so they also didn't want to hurt their print business. It was just a whole mentality. And so that was one big thing, which now sounds obvious. I mean, the things we introduced are so prevalent now that you can't imagine they didn't exist. Having just punchier headlines and saying, you know, having a point of view was, was very important. And so theirs are always, you know, very neutral, which has a benefit, but some people wanted to know, what do you think of this? Why is this acquisition a really dumb idea? That makes you want to read it. And the third thing was, you know, the reason I also couldn't raise money for Business Insider was that we had no media background, media was a terrible business, uh, and we would tell people, we're never going to spend a dollar of advertising. And we'll eventually be the biggest in the world, just because the product's so good. And that really doesn't work very often. Yeah. And you've never seen an ad for Business Insider, still today, and they are 300 million uniques, uh, and it's the biggest business, now broad publication in the world. Ironic that you came out of advertising and both of your both of those businesses, Mongo and, and Business Insider, were uh, fundamentally not, hey, we're not going to do advertising. Do, was it something philosophically that you think perverts the customer base in some way or, or gives you no, no, hooked no. on a drug that you can't get off of? And, and don't worry, for the first seven years, the only revenue for Business Insider was advertising. From so, a business standpoint, but you weren't, you weren't advertising to acquire uh, customers, no, right? Yeah. No, for media, it just doesn't work. There's yeah. no chance that, that the numbers can't work there. So you just have to assume and focus on doing the right things there. No, I think one of the thing, interesting things I did decide in 2005 was that, and I've lived this, even though I was arguably the number one person in ad technology in the world at that point, because Double Q was the biggest company, that I have never had a one-hour meeting about ad technology since then. Just because I was completely bored of it. You know, I spent nine years of my life, and <clears throat> I didn't want to spend my whole career doing that. We had solved most things. Uh, most things, you know, that were, had been created at that point. There's only so many ways you can serve up an ad. And so I just thought I would rather do something else, even if I know less about it, because I'll be intellectually interested in it. It's funny, uh, Zach Weinberg sat in that, that yeah. seat, whatever, a week ago, and uh, he said the same mm -hmm. thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting, uh, because advertising in general is such a, um, it's so competitive, it's so IP and technologically mm -hmm. uh, difficult to do. Yeah. It's actually a very good sharpening of the spear, yeah. but then everyone burns out of it. Everyone's like, I, I, yeah, I'm going to do something else. I made my money doing this, and I'm yeah. going to do. So it's a good training ground. It's sort of like gaming and enterprise software, yeah. like Stuart Butterfield, the Discord guys, a bunch of people come out of gaming because it is the, the tip of the spear. Like Absolutely. your users hate you if you really mess it up. Yeah. Enterprise software is much more forgiving. Yes. But then once you do it, you're like, I, I just need to, <laughs> I need to get out of there. So Business Insider, uh, so the, the insight was, hey, the, these folks are doing that. How, how did you go about uh, validating that that was actually going to work? How'd you find Henry Blodgett? Yeah, so, I mean, I just said, let's start a publication. And I went out and interviewed seven people. Henry was one of them. And Henry had got it within 30 seconds was an incredibly good writer. So most people were thrown off by the fact that there had been stuff on Wall Street in the late nine, uh, nine, nine, last which, century. Which, which it, it, everyone was doing at the time. Not to, not for, maybe give the details of like what was going sure. on in the 90s at that At point. the time, you know, investment bankers were saying, I'm going to take your company public and we'll make sure that our analysts write good things about you. Give you the buy coverage and yeah. whatever, all that stuff. Which essentially is still true always because no one's going to take a company public unless they talk to the analysts and he feels good about it. But Henry put it in writing. Henry actually put his concerns in writing. I mean, the irony is everyone else just did it. Henry said at one point internally, like, I don't feel very comfortable what you're asking me to do here, and then got punished for that. So I, I didn't take that. My takeaway was not uh, that he did something wrong there. And I saw what every other analyst did when they came to us and said, look, we'll write what you ever need, whatever you need. So I didn't blame Henry for that at all. It, 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 it. 
We could debate whether or not it was something wrong, but he didn't do something different no. and wrong at all. Yeah. It was it was something pervasive to the industry. Yeah. And some of the people that uh, covered internet stocks or software stocks at the time are still today some of the more prominent people yeah. in the industry. Also, so everything he wrote was approved by someone else and was structurally in the system. It wasn't like he independently came up with the idea that he wanted to do something. There was part of the senior people who said, we're going to do this. How did he get scapegoated for that? <laughs> Merrill Lynch threw him under the bus. Mm. Interesting. And I, I actually think he probably should have fought it more. That's just me personally. And probably could have gotten away with that because, I mean, there was no scenario where he was a rogue warrior doing sure, things. Yeah. It didn't happen. Yeah. So anyway, I think he's an incredible guy. He is still running it today. Uh, he's done a remarkable job. And he deserves the credit for why it's so successful. Building Business Insider uh, and building a media company in general doesn't sound, uh, it feels like a very difficult business. Mm -hmm. We talked about why yeah. people didn't want to fund it and all of that. Um, was, it, was it lightning mm -hmm. in a bottle right away from a growth standpoint? And ultimately the question was the monetization or how far it could go in terms of you know, the upside? The, the chart <clears throat> for probably nine years in a row was basically that traffic doubled every year. Hmm. Except that, you know how that doubling works, that doubling gets big. <clears throat> and so when we had 2 million uniques going to 4 million, you know, like you don't care. When it was 32 going to 64 and then doubling again, obviously had to slow down at some point. But, um, you know, people just liked the product. They passed it on. It just, the product worked. It was fundamentally different and great execution, great point of view. And, and it ended up, I mean, it's still, it, it ended up being sold for 300 million? Axel Springer sold it for, or bought it for 450 million uh, in, in 2008. One of the bigger one of the bigger media related deals. And actually, interestingly, which Henry and I still watch, is that at the time people said, "Oh, BuzzFeed is more valuable than you," and it'll be more valuable. I'm not sure. Ultimately, they're going to be more valuable. I think Business Center may end up being the most valuable publication. And even today, and this is seven years later, you know, BuzzFeed's not worth more than what we sold Business Insider for. Was the business all advertising at that point? Yeah. You know, we had started the subscription business. And so we knew long-term that that would be the ultimate business. And today, I don't see the numbers, but I, I'm sure it's a very big part of their business. Were you involved in, uh, how, how involved on the day-to-day -day were you of that one? No, I was chairman. I mean, I talked to Henry a lot, but Henry ran the business uh, and I was involved with other things. So, you know, helping him and involve, I, I negotiated the sale, for example, uh, to Axel Springer. Um, but in general, Henry was the CEO, ran that business and did a great job. So guilt, you actually stepped in yeah. and were the CEO. And that was... Uh, one of the, the rocket ships of, yeah. of all time, certainly in New York, yes. right? Maybe, maybe take through people. Uh, I, I tend to have a little bit of a younger audience at times yep. that maybe don't even yeah, don't remember what guilt was. Uh, no, it was a phenomenon. And uh, I had this very simple um, <clears throat> takeaway, which was because my wife is French and I, I grew up in Europe, uh, I knew this company, Vault Privé. And Vault Privé was doing, it was just guilt there. It was a flash sales every day. They were doing a billion dollars in revenue in France you know, in 2008. And so I sat and thought, why does that exist there, but not here? And so I just thought I should do that here. And so I adapted it, but you know. It's kind of the reverse rocket internet. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and so I didn't know anything about fashion, but you know, brought on a team, launched it, and it just took off from day one. So the first year, we launched in November, the first year, the next year we did 25 million in revenue, which is a staggering amount. And the second year, 175. And so we had to race to keep up to that. So we were you know, selling products. Uh, it was a fantastic time. We, we brought very good people on board. Everyone in New York was on it. Uh, and everyone started across the country uh, you know, got on as well. So we got to $500 million in about four years. We had 1,000 employees. 
unbelievably fun business to run. You know, we started selling home, kids, you know, travel. I had a hundred million dollar travel business called Jet Setter that's still around. Um, and so we, uh, it was, it was a, it was a fun time. And the, the 500 million in revenue yeah. you got up to it. And the, the highest watermark on valuation, General Atlantic did around at 650. No, like a billion. Oh, a billion. Wow. Uh, and, and what, what lessons ultimately yeah. it sold for, uh, 250 million. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then after that, I think sold for even for less. Like 5 million sacks water for 250. And then they sold it for five or 10 million three years later. Yeah, so, so I guess you got off at uh, maybe not the top point, but, but, but a better point than yeah. what. what uh, no, and I wanted to sell the business um, and actually had to convince the board because I didn't like the dynamics of the industry. And what was really happening, which we didn't have a solution for, was that everyone started discounting everywhere. So when we started, Mark Jacobs didn't have a website and Macy's had a terrible website. But then at the end, you know, Farfetch was selling Mark Jacobs. Mark Jacobs was selling Mark Jacobs. Macy was selling Mark Jacobs. We were selling Mark Jacobs. Uh, and so it became a race to the lowest price mm. and became very hard to, to make money. And ultimately today, you know, there's no one successfully doing that business model. Mm. I still think it should work somewhere, but it's very hard. The, uh, and so, so at the time, the insight and the phenomenon behind it was partially high-end uh, products, right? Yep. Discounted to so. Yep. So why did it work at the time? Like, what was the? Because the, you couldn't buy Mark Jacobs at fifty percent off unless you went to a sample sale. And I walked by a sample sale when I was thinking about this idea, and there were two hundred people waiting in line. And I remember thinking, you know what? There's fifty thousand people who'd like to be in this line, but they're in their office at Goldman Sachs right now, mostly women, but not only. You know, they're either in Philadelphia. Yeah, they're in they're Ohio somewhere, yeah. And they're dying to be in this line to get Mark Jacobs at 50% off mm -hmm. or name any other brand. Um, how can I bring it to them? And so TJ Maxx does a version of that, but still many brands came to us and said, you know, we didn't really want to be a TJ Maxx. That's not brand enhancing. But online, I could create something that was brand enhancing. It looked beautiful. Uh, it didn't look like they were discounting. I could control it. And so it was a great product for many brands. We benefited by the fact that in 2009, times were, were tough. They had a lot of unsold inventory. But then it was super convenient. You know, who doesn't want to see great merchandise at a great price if it's carefully curated for you? It, it, the, uh, the, the lessons along the way, other than probably selling earlier than, than you did, was there, was there anything that, it, it sounds like you think it could still work today. Was there anything that strategically, yeah. like would you have gone slower in that ramp or was this going? Is, this is the one bit, I generally move quickly and that's both my strength and weakness. And here, if I did it again, I would have restrained the growth. In the same way that if you open a nightclub across the street, if you try and scale it forever, it'll be worth zero, right? Your nightclub is only worth something if there are people at the door waiting to get in and they can't get in. And so you always have to operate so that some people can't get in. You know, the right amount of supply is sort of demand minus one or two. And we let it run. We had so much opportunity, we let it run. And I should have kept it constrained. Mm. I should have, you know, in retrospect, I would have started to kick people off the site if they didn't buy and that would have, you know, that would have gotten people excited. The scarcity, the constraint, the Scar cool factor of all yeah. that. Like, I want to be a club, the Groucho yeah. Marx quote. I don't want to be a yeah. part of a club that wants me as a member. Just said, look, we have a limited number of members. <clears throat> you haven't purchased anything in six months. Really appreciate it. But unfortunately, we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to do this anymore. And I think you would have been like, I want to buy something to get there. And then I would have had a real, real wait list. Hmm. So you just can't get it. 
Yeah. Now, Zola, you've had the insight we talked about it a second ago, mm-hmm. but uh, there were a ton of wedding websites yeah. and you said, hey, uh, there should be a better way of doing this. People don't want uh, to go through a single registry at Bloomingdale's or whatever it was. There were two, two um, big conclusions. One is that because people were getting married later, often they just they already lived with their, their, their spouse, future spouse. They already had a kitchen. In 1955, you were 21. You married someone out of college who was 21. You didn't own anything. We're not getting you yoga classes. You don't have a fork to eat with. And so that made sense at the time. But it's evolved. The second thing, though, that had changed, and so Zola could not have been created five years before because you need to be able to drop ship everything. So the department stores had the advantage that everything in their warehouse in, you know, 2005, and no one else could get that. But we could drop ship from everywhere. Maybe explain drop shipping. And what yeah, that- so that when we sold something from Crate and Barrel or any brand, it wasn't in our warehouse. You bought it from Zola. We sent money to Great and Barrel. They shipped it to you and you got it, you know, five days later. And so that allowed us to operate without a warehouse and without uh, a photo studio. And, you know, guilt, I had to have an enormous photo studio and an enormous warehouse. This lowered the costs a lot. Yeah, got it. So th- that allowed it to be a good uh, business in yes. a financial sense is yes. that you didn't actually have to house unused so inventory. The business does more than, you know, half a billion dollars a year now in wedding gifts, which, you know, is... Quite extraordinary. So shifting gears a little bit, I want to go through some of the philosophies that I've heard you say uh, and just your opinions on them. So I, I heard you say you'd rather have uh, someone ship a B-plus yeah. work than an A work within startups. Yeah. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I always tell people on the team and everything, not just shipping, that I want you to do B, B quality work, B-plus work, not A work. And that always confuses them because obviously they got to this place by doing A work sure. for work, life. It's more important that you get something out the door and then we move quickly. Because we're gonna change it anyway. And we're gonna improve whatever you just wrote, whether it's a marketing brochure or something else. Nothing is here forever, you know? So, uh, but getting it out the door and getting feedback is so important. And it takes a lot more time to do an A paper than it does a B paper. Yeah, the, the getting from the, the 85, whatever B plus is, yeah. 88% to the 100% is not, it's not 12% no. more work, right? It's, it's actually work. 50% more work or 100% more Absolutely. work to get there. There's some things in life that, you know, if it's, if it's a healthcare product that's mission critical sure. and a database is another one, you actually can't go that quickly there. But everything else needs to get out the door and move really quickly. Now, in starting companies, uh, you, you are very much of the fail fast mindset that, that the problem isn't the failure itself. The problem is actually continuing yes. to go. And, and, yeah. and in particular, as we're in this more recessionary environment, how do you think about yeah. that and why that's the case? Because and it's more an advice to people as well that you know, entrepreneurs are obviously congenitally optimistic or they wouldn't be doing something that is insane and has a low probability of working. And that is good to get them off the ground, and it's bad over time because they keep convincing themselves that it's going to work. And I always tell people, your time is so valuable that you know, it's better that after two years it doesn't work, and you move on to a better idea. And the truth is the majority of things work in the first two years, and you see those signs. Once in a while, we can also cite some examples where in year four it really takes off, but actually that's pretty rare. Yeah, the, the overnight success uh, story tends yeah. to be the one. To, and it also, I mean, back to the original point, a lot of these best internet companies didn't spend a lot in advertising, no. right, to get going. It, the product was differentiated. Now, whether it was Airbnb or any of these things, uh, Uber, they worked really, in, I mean, maybe it was a small market, maybe it was tiny. You know, even Gilt, I, I put 50 dresses for sale the first day, and I told the team, after 45 minutes, say that everything's sold out. So we create the impression that it's all sold out. 
It turns out they all sold out. And from day one, things were selling. I almost had a problem at one point because uh, so many people were coming in to buy that uh, it was selling out in, in you know, a minute and no one believed that there was actually merchandise there. Uh, so that was, I mean, it was a good problem to have, but we thought about stopping people from coming in because it was hurting the product. A corollary to that is, uh, and this is something we, we definitely battle, is people optimizing too much for titles versus the companies they're on. They'd yeah. rather be VP of shitco than you know, whatever random person at a super successful company. I give that advice all the time. You know, you would rather have been the 40th employee at Google with a bad title and bad initial compensation because ultimately success solves everything. One, you're probably gonna get promoted because we just need people. Two, you'll end up making a ton of money uh, if you're there. Three, you're gonna work with really good people because really great companies get better people. And four, your resume's gonna look better. So everything works out. And I have, I have friends who you know, continue to keep stretching, let's say to be CEO and not be head of business development, and then, but have four companies in a row that aren't good. And if it's growing like a weed, inevitably the battlefield promotion will come yes. that you, you'll, you'll get promoted because you're the person that's there, right? And yes. I, I always think about there's only a handful of resumes that will, or a handful of brands or, that will define your resume at some point in time. And forever you will be associated with MongoDB, yeah. forever you'll be associated with guilt, uh, yeah. guilt and, and, uh, exactly. and double click and all that. And it's no one ever cares really about the title that no. it was. They look much more at you were at Stripe, you were at Google, you were at and Facebook. I think that on resumes, people overvalue. I mean, not every person at Stripe or at Gilt or Mongo are great. I mean, even if the average quality is higher, uh, but people have a tendency to think, oh, you were just 10 times better than everyone else. You know, going to Harvard is on average maybe much better than the community college, but it's just not true that every single person at a company that didn't work is not good. Another interesting thing on the interview process, uh, where people tend to overweight, it seems. I found that I aren't, I am not particularly good at interviewing mm -hmm. people in the sense that I'm able to discern the quality that they're going to be when they're on the job. You've had an interesting approach of you would rather not interview people yeah. and only do references. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> for me, I, I like it as just sports. You know, do you want to interview basketball players or do you want to watch them play? And so any coach would be like, I don't care about the interview. Uh, I'm going to watch them play. That's, that's the game. Well, you can't necessarily watch someone play, but a reference check is someone who did watch them play. And so that's the best you can get to, and it's more important. And we all get thrown off. We, we have, in, you know, every single study has shown that we have inherent biases, whether we think so or not. Uh, and so you like the person, you think they're great, they're personal, they have a great handshake, and so then you want to hire them. And that just doesn't matter. There's so many things that we all know are important, like attention to detail, focus, grit, things like that. They don't come up in an interview. You know, you can just say, I have great attention to detail. Uh, but someone who worked with him will know. So it's, you would just do a better job and you wouldn't mail in your, 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 your uh, reference checks if you did. And so, so if, you're, if you're actually going about this, if you're, or yeah. you're talking to a founder and giving advice and you come to me and say, hey, Logan, I want your references. And I, I then go to a friend mm -hmm. that you, I used to work with and say, hey, Kevin yeah. wants to interview me, give my references. They're probably, they don't mm -hmm. know you, they yeah. do know me. Really? They're mm -hmm. gonna give you positive references. How do you actually go about getting the quality references? So, most people pride themselves on saying, oh, I interviewed 25 people for this spot, which took 25 hours plus the search, right? How many hours did you spend trying to get to someone who, on your own who knew this person? Did you spend 25 hours? No one does. So they're just not, they're not valuing it. And so if you spend a lot of time getting there, and I, I use this example that someone I know very well called me and said, Kevin, do me a favor. A friend of mine who you don't know 
wants to do a true reference check on someone you do know, and I'm calling to ask you to make sure that it's really fair and honest. So now I have an obligation to him. And so you're right, he's flipped it around. So you can get, unless someone's 21 and they never work somewhere, uh, people move around, there are people. And we even have, once in a while, we had to call up randomly. But if you call enough people, you'll start to piece it together. You'll start to hear little signals of like, oh yeah, you know, they're really focused or attention to detail or something will come up three or four times and you'll realize there's a problem. In getting to those references, how many would you actually, I'm sure it depends on the role and all, but how many do you think it, it takes to actually get the confirmation? Well, for senior people, it's gonna, we're going to do at least five. At least five. Yeah, at least five. You want to see people who work generally alongside them. That peer relationship is really important. That's where assholes come out. Uh, you want people who work for them. Most people focus on who they worked for. But that's you know, somewhat important, but not as important. Anyone who's coming in as a manager, you know, their job is to recruit other people. And to, everyone has a choice. We have 3.4% unemployment. So if you don't have a good reputation, you're not going to be able to build a team, and that's your number one job. It's interesting. Probably the, the direct reports uh, probably actually have a better insight into oh, the yeah. person than the top do. down. You're getting some, some yeah. superficial level thing. Uh, but because the person working for that person knows not only what they thought, but they know the peers. I mean, if we all work for the same guy, you know, we talk about a lot, him or mm. her. And so we you know, all know what other people think as well. And, and are, do, you, do you do the linkages as well of if they got hired by someone that they worked for or bring people along? Is that, is that a helpful data point? Very helpful. You, know, you really want to see when people have started to move companies once or twice, you know, did someone follow them? You know, when I talk to people, I point out the fact that I have many, many, many people who worked for me at one point and now came back to me and want me as an investor or a board member or something like that. And you know, they have other choices. They don't have to do that. And so I want to see that in other people as well. Are there qualities, some people talk about like the, the hiring for the lowest uh, or making sure they don't have any weaknesses, right? I've also heard a lot of people making sure they optimize for the spikes. And I'm willing to take an asshole if they're freakishly smart and they're mm-hmm. able to whatever, uh, get stuff done or wh- whatever the things are. Are there things that are non-negotiable, maybe it's asshole, that you're not willing to take on? And then do you tend to hire more for the spikes or more for the, the you know, high minimum across the board? So <clears throat> actually, it depends a little bit on individual, individual contributors can be more spiky. But managers need to be a little bit more generous. You know, at the end of the day, you, you have to be able to attract people. Now, if you're a real asshole, it's not going to work. People don't want to work for you. But <clears throat> you can be finally grumpy, or especially in the technical areas. You know, not everyone has the, the best personality. But if the team respects them and is going to learn from them, which is why a lot of people are in tech, then you can get over that. So, but you're, look, no one's perfect. You're always you know, balancing a couple of different things. And you never get the perfect person that has everything. Uh, so that's, that's why all these things are ultimately judgment calls. Now, I, I've heard another thing on the interviewing process as well, or, 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 or I, I've heard you weigh in as two straight white men. This feels like the appropriate uh, forum for us to weigh in on diversity in the industry. Mm-hmm. But um, are, are there elements of, of uh, ability to uh, bring more people into the industry mm-hmm. that you've seen? Because I, I've heard you talk a lot about the, some of the upstream considerations that go with the diversity mm-hmm. in the tech industry especially, right? Yeah. And so how do you think about that and some of the systematic issues that probably exist today? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> look, there's, there's no question that the tech industry is not diverse on every dimension. Um, some it is on 
on Asian men, it's unbelievably overrepresented and very diverse. Um, not intentionally. Uh, look, in, when you're getting into the technical areas of the internet, it is going to reflect what undergraduate uh, education looks like. So it's not a tech industry problem necessarily that right now something like 15 or 16% of computer science degrees are given to women. You know, <clears throat> there are certain jobs, if you don't have that, you just can't really do the job. And so we operate with a smaller pool. Everyone just try and tries to do a good job, but we can't solve that problem. Society, parents, schools need to try and solve that problem. Uh, so that's the only thing we need to, to balance off there. And look, if you have, I, I gave a speech the other day at a Columbia tech group, and for better or worse, that still today is heavily male and heavily white and Asian. And so that's the pool that's coming out in that area for the next 20 years, whether we like it or not. I want to talk about education in general, because I know you have some, th some yeah. thoughts on that. But what about CEOs? Uh, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but there's this uh, lionized example of the jobs and the, the Zuckerbergs and the mm -hmm. people that, go the, that can go the distance. Yeah. Uh, I get the feeling you don't have that no. exact same opinion, that, that the ability to scale is something that it, we should hold in that regard. It's probably the most contrarian thing that <clears throat> I've done, which is you know, when you start multiple companies, then in theory, I come up with the idea, but I'm not the CEO. And everyone believes in the sort of Silicon Valley ethos is that, that only that original founder has the vision. And it's, it's just not true that, you know, the, the vision develops over time. There are other people that can do it. Now, it's not easy to get a good CEO. But I also think there are many companies, and Mongo is a good example, where the right person for the first three years was programming every day. And the right person for the last seven years is someone who can understand that product, but it's not the one driving it. You know, the CTO is driving that, but is one driving the enterprise sales, the managing 5,000 people, a public company. Those are different skills. Once in a while, the same person does both. But there's no reason why those can't be different people. And that works just fine. Do you think the success of the founding CEOs often is related to uh, the credibility that they have in those situations versus mm -hmm. the, that they're actually the right person for the job at any point along the way? I mean, right now, because Silicon Valley believes this, it definitely helps and it's become self-fulfilling. But... I mean, look at Microsoft. Does anyone think that, it, that for the first time that we have a non-founder CEO, that there's a problem? Just the opposite. Everyone looks and thinks that Sasha is better, doing a better job than Ballmer was, and the company has done unbelievably well since then. So do we need a founder now? Yeah, it's interesting. One of the, the psychological shifts that the non-founder CEOs, uh, at least I've worked with, mm -hmm. and I think the ones I've observed uh, seen be successful are, are they, they actually are willing to burn the boats if yeah. needed, right? And that's one of the things, I mean, if you talk back in the day of Steve Jobs coming back in or whatever the case may be, Reed Hastings being able to pivot, mm -hmm. pivot Netflix or all those yeah. decisions along the way. Oftentimes, if it came from nothing and when that person started it, then they're willing to take the big risk that could bring it back to nothing. And so it's yeah. kind of that psychological difficult shift. But I guess in some ways, like mm -hmm. Satya has done a lot of things that were uh, antithetical to the way Bomber yeah. ran, ran the company. So I guess it. Yeah, and I don't, <clears throat> I don't even like the categorization in some ways because this is all down to a person. In the same way that no one would be happy if we started talking about how, you know, black CEOs do versus white versus Polish versus sure. French versus Christian. That would be a, a topic that everyone feels uncomfortable with because it's down to the person. Founders and non-founders are the same thing. There, there are many bad founders who don't change and drive the company into the wall. There's ama there are amazing founders that we all hear about who pivot, do this, it's incredible. And the same is true otherwise. So <clears throat> there can be some tendencies maybe, but those don't matter. 
I'm not interviewing a tendency, I'm interviewing a person. And is it the right person? At a personal level, you, you've been able, so you've done all these things, started all these different businesses, uh, and I want to get into some of the stuff that you're thinking about today. You've also managed to uh, raise a family and seemingly have yep. a uh, good balance. You've been married for a while. How many kids do you have? I have three kids. Three kids. Been three, married. Three, three years together. Presumably going well on yeah. both both accounts, yeah. the father and the marriage. Uh, but even at DoubleClick, you were taking off uh, five weeks uh, a year, like, like kind of non-negotiable. Now mm -hmm. it's it's closer to eight or nine mm -hmm. that you go over to Europe, right? Yeah. How do you think about the balancing and the 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 fulfillment of life in that regard? That like this isn't going to be the only thing that defines you. You're going to have the other, these other things as well. Well, I was, and I <clears throat> really push and encourage my CEOs that, you know, if, if obviously if there's a, a fundraising that's closing in 10 days, yes, you should be working really hard. You have, you have to close it. We get that. But over time, this is like a marathon and you just have to be at a pace that is very good for you. I want you to be in this position five, seven years from now. And so I think it's better for people to take those five weeks to feel good about their family. You know, the reason people step down and have problems is they burn out. And so, yes, you need to work hard. Uh, you need to be focused, you need to use your time, but you need to be, be balanced. I'm still working the same schedule as I was you know, 25 years ago. Uh, I work hard, I'm intellectually interested in a lot of things. I stay in shape. Those things are all important to me and why I'm still feeling good and many people have burned out. What motivates you to keep, I mean, presumably <laughs> yeah. after DoubleClick, you could have hung right. out, right? You could have done my job, become a full-time VC. <laughs> and uh, uh, what, what motivates you to keep going? Like, what, what are these things that, that excite you or, or keeps you coming back every day to start companies? Yeah, no, the two things I like are really just the, the challenge of starting a company or building a company is just what I like to do. Like, if I was at someone's wedding tomorrow, you know, for better or worse, I'm not talking about the most recent opera that came out. This is not something that interests me. And I am happy to talk to some random person there about the new idea they have. I just find it really interesting. And I love the variety of things that are happening. I love the change. I love the challenge. You know, it's hard. You're trying to do something that no one else has done or this company would already exist. And so and there are existing players. So that is just, I think, the hardest thing in business. And therefore, why not the thing you want to do? I love the fact that literally every day I'm thinking about a new industry and trying to learn about, you know, organoids or something else that I didn't know existed before. And I also really like working with people, mentoring people. And now I've been doing this for a long time. And so hopefully I can add some value. You know, I don't want their job. So I, it's not like a chairman, a CEO steps up the chairman and micromanages the, the next CEO. That often doesn't work well. I definitely don't want to do this job. I want this person to be successful. I'm a shareholder. I generally pick them, and I, I think they're amazing, and I want them to do well. We touched on some of the areas that you are interested in today, organoids and maritime and that stuff. Are there broad thematic uh, areas that you have kind of general interest in, yeah. uh, even at a higher level than those? I mean, certainly at the very highest level, uh, healthcare is an industry that I think has enormous opportunities for startups. I always tell people that you know, in e-commerce, there aren't very many opportunities. And the reason is that every single thing you can name right now will be delivered to your door by tomorrow. And incredibly inexpensive. I don't know how to do better than that. Whereas you want to have knee surgery, someone's going to pay about 40000 even though everyone in Europe will pay 20000 and have better results. So it's yours is both poor results and expensive. That, for me, is an opportunity. So many things can be done better there. And then there's technology shifts that excite me. So in terms of robotics, uh, things like that, uh, deep science, semiconductors, nanotechnology, those are all areas where things are changing. 
you, know, you need change. I don't think e-commerce is going to be that different five years from now from today. And frankly, it's not that different from five years ago. But some other areas are. So then within healthcare, there, you know, value-based care is a big fundamental trend, but there are many things to be done there. Psychedelics is a space that is, I find personally interesting, and it's gonna be a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's gonna help mental health. So I have multiple companies in that space as well. And, and psychedelics is a particularly interesting one. How did you, did you uh, get into that originally and, and start pursuing that? So I started, I, I actually was very influenced by the Michael Pollan book, which changed the trajectory of psychedelics, so how to change your mind which is one of the New York Times 10 best books of uh, five or six years ago. Uh, and then, you know, in the, in the tech world, started learning about it. Yale happened to have, historically, a very strong academic presence in psychedelics. They did a lot of the original work in ketamine. I was on the board of Yale at the time, so I thought I should just reach out and get to know this department. Saw they were doing fascinating work. Became now the leading funder for the Yale Center for Psychedelic Research. Now that I've looked at all the academic studies, things like that, you know, the results are unbelievable. And... I also felt like it could play a role because VC funds often can't even invest or couldn't invest in this area because they're scheduled drugs, <clears throat> which is insane. These are, we're getting money from the federal government to Yale to do research. That's not exactly, you know, a shifty area. And, uh, and 295 academic studies have been done. They're almost all positive and they're helping solve one of the biggest problems we know of, which is mental health. Can, can we talk at a, just because it's in, such an interesting uh, area, uh, uh, and I don't think a lot of people understand what's going on. Can, can, can we talk at a like granular level about yeah. like the benefits of, of ketamine that have come out in the studies and psychedelics yep. in general, what they're being used for, and where it is in the approval process and all of that? Absolutely. And my recommendation of the week would be the John Oliver show a week and a half ago on psychedelics which uh, does a very good job of painting the picture over 20 minutes. So I don't know when we're going to air this. That would be late February, probably, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah. of when it came out. Sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so what we're seeing that, that, uh, that psychedelics, and we're talking about psychedelics, we're generally, even though there are 300 of them, we're generally talking about MDMA or ecstasy, uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, LSD, and ketamine. Those are the big four, or most of the studies we done. There's small ones like ayahuasca, ibogaine for addiction that are coming, but majority of the first four. And what we're seeing, depending on the condition, is that you can come in, for example, for PTSD, which is an enormous problem for veterans and sexual assault victims, that almost 70% of people who had taken one, two, or three doses of, a, of MDMA six months later were diagnosed with zero PTSD. We've never come close to that for any form of drug, any form of treatment, it's mind-blowingly, epically different. And that's what we're seeing. And where you don't have to be on an antidepressant for the next 30 years. You don't have to spend $30,000 doing that. Uh, you have three sessions, and there's a good chance, not always, that you'll be in, in a much better place. And three sessions in, in the MDMA mm -hmm. case, are, are you, I assume they're not sending you to a rave. Like, are you in a, uh, are you in a no. facility the You're entirety of the time? You're on a couch like this uh, with a guy who's there the entire time who has spoken to them, and so it's a therapist, it's therapist assisted. So, and that is very important for the true mental health benefits. Mm -hmm. You can go to a rave and take it, but you're not gonna get those mental health benefits. Yeah, yeah you're gonna right have a good time, but it's a good time. <laughs> uh, um, and it'll probably be better than alcohol yeah. uh, and safer. But, um, but so th this is what's amazing about this. And the thing that people forget is we all grew up uh, thinking that these drugs were super dangerous, that all drugs were bad. And most drugs are bad. Psychedelics though, unlike alcohol, are not addictive. If we're talking about uh, mushrooms, private MDMA, or private LSD, ketamine can have some addictive 
possibilities. But they're not addictive, and you can't overdose. overdose. And yet, people will say, I, I don't take these things because they're too dangerous, whereas you know, alcohol is addictive, and you can overdose. It's just fundamentally worse for you and more dangerous. How, uh, dating, I mean, dating back to Prohibition and then also through the 60s and all the stuff mm-hmm. that, that sort of, I think, brought these psychedelics more into the uh, mainstream yeah. consciousness, how, how does this actually get regulated at a federal level mm-hmm. versus a state level? And where are we in that journey right now? Yeah, and so the, the, the psychedelic movement was really set back by the Nixon administration because they wanted to paint you know, anti-war activists as being all druggies. And there was some overlap. Uh, and so it was very easy to do that. So they scheduled all the drugs. They, meet, they met that no one could do research on them, even though the research done in the 60s was extraordinary and people had fantastic results. And yet we cut it off for 40 years. So now that's being relaxed. People are realizing that's not a good idea. And so we're seeing, uh, we're seeing good work there. The federal state thing is very complicated. So at the federal level, the FDA will by next year um, approve MDMA for PTSD. And probably a year or so after that, psilocybin for depression. Those are on schedule. And then other companies are moving forward. I have a company called Transcend that is taking methylone, which is a compound you wouldn't know as well, through the FDA process. And we're in phase two right now. And so if that goes well, probably three or four years away. And there are other companies doing interesting things as well. But then at the state level, Oregon, uh, on a ballot initiative, approved uh, psilocybin uh, it, and, which is legal this year to be given out. Psilocybin mushrooms, mushrooms as people know. Mushrooms. Oregon just approved, which will kick in in a year, for plant-based medicines to be legal. Um, and other, at the state level, states are already passing legislation. So New York has legislation in front of it right now to decriminalize uh, and, and, and schedule differently drugs at our state. So many things are happening at the state level and at the federal level. And sometimes they're actually in conflict, but that's an inherent in our Where are uh, suppliers ultimately coming from of all this? I assume, uh, like, are there regulated uh, mushroom makers? And, yes. And are they local to different states, or how does that actually no, work? No, it doesn't have to be statewide, but uh, they have to be approved by the government. There's a lot of strict... All, all compounds that are very dangerous um, are quite regulated, and so you can do it. Like, when Yale does... Um, gives out uh, psilocybin or mushrooms, they actually, the federal laws are that you have to store it in a safe. And I think the safe has to weigh 300 pounds and it has to be bolted to the floor. And you have to track every milligram and say, look, I'm giving him two, which means I have 10 milligrams left. And so you just, they just don't want to run the risk that it's floating around. So it's very regulated. It's very bureaucratic. I don't think all these things should be scheduled uh, in the way that they are, but for the time being, they are. How, how is the progress, what, what was the big unlock in the last couple of years for this? Because 40 years yeah. after the Nixon administration, I should sh- say no to drugs. I, mm-hmm. I guess Nancy Reagan probably didn't help all this yeah. stuff. Like, what, uh, how, how did this sort of unlock? So a combination of, um, I would say, three things. One, that uh, the Michael Pollan book was very, very important. And that came out in 2016, 2017. But before that, MAPS, which is an organization that has done incredible work for 30 years, you know, uh, on MDMA, had slowly been making progress. The fact that places like Burning Man and more people, especially in the tech and other industries, were taking these drugs and having good results, and then a series of underground guides, which still exists today. I mean, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of technically illegal, but guides in New York City that are not regulated and not, nothing is enforced against them, are doing one-on-one sessions with people for these various conditions and having, on, on average, unbelievable results. 
And so all of that, the word got out. So right now, I mean, I was with a guy who was a Goldman Sachs partner, and he's like, oh yeah, I, I you know, did a psilocybin session, and it's really helped my depression. And when he tells 10 friends, all of a sudden people are like, wow, that's not so crazy. So the word is just getting out almost the way that business insider traffic grew because people liked it and they told their friends, that's what's happening here. So usage at every level is growing uh, a lot. Uh, Australia is the first first world country to legalize both MDMA and uh, psilocybin. Uh, and that- For not recreational use. For, not re- for, when we say legalize, this is for doctors to prescribe. Prescribed, yeah. Almost no one is a proponent right now of saying you can just buy it on the street like you can cannabis. So it's most important that we get these into the hands of people who have mental health issues and help solve those problems. Now, the flip side of, of uh, I guess, some of the, the benefits of drugs, I think you've, you've yeah. also spent si- uh, some time on the other side, which is coming up with things around meth uh, yeah. support. A company and- that, meth- that deals with meth addiction and other forms of addiction, which is an enormous problem. And, and, and so what is that? How, how have you thought about going about trying to help and solve some of those issues on, the, on that very, very yeah. negative side? No, no. And so there I just put into the category we talked earlier that you're trying to think of problems to solve. Like e-commerce is not a problem to solve, so I'm not trying to solve it. Uh, many healthcare issues are. Everyone here knows that the number of meth addicts is staggering. And it's, by the way, much bigger than most of you think. Because your friends aren't meth addicts. Yes. It, it's, it's, it's very regionalized in a lot of ways. Regionalized, socioeconomic. Yes. Uh, but it's millions and millions of people. And their ability to get them off that is very hard. So we did a lot of research. So my team is interested in addiction. He had started uh, Groups, which is an opioid addiction company, and which is worth hundreds of millions of dollars and treats a lot of people and is a fantastic company. And he thought about the rest of the world and said, no one's doing anything in meth. Did the research then to see what is the most promising thing I see. And it was a digital therapeutic. So it's sort of like Noom for weight loss, so that every day I can get a reinforcement like, oh, good job, Kevin, you didn't do math today, or you did work out, or you did do this. And that's better if I can't talk to a doctor all the time, that's the next best thing. So our results so far appear to be better than comparable programs. And healthcare systems have now realized that if you're, one of your employees is on meth, the healthcare costs are staggering. He loses a tooth. Used to think that was a dental problem. It's not a dental problem. It's a meth problem. He fell down the stairs. That's not a sports injury. He broke his leg. It's a meth problem. And so that person can rack up, you know, $150,000 worth of uh, cost during a year. So they, healthcare systems, like, we'll pay a lot of money if we can have a chance of getting this person off meth. Not to mention, it makes the world a better place. You've spent a lot of time in healthcare, both as it relates to uh, some of these psychedelic benefits, as in addition to other things. That that is there anything that if if I gave you a magic wand, uh, you're also I think have some political interests too. Is there is there anything within the healthcare system that if I give you a magic wand, either at a hey you can get a company to some scale to do these things, or the government would change X Y Z thing at a federal level or state level? Is there anything that you see just the lowest hanging fruit to... Yeah, the, the, the structure, we have many structural problems, but one of the biggest ones is that uh, there's no incentive uh, to prevent things. You know, if you're a doctor, you don't get paid to prevent anything. In fact, arguably, if you think about it, it just reduces your revenues. And so the people have, you know, healthcare systems overall have that incentive. Because we give it to private companies right now, on average, I know you're going to be gone in two years, right? Three years? Is cancer my problem as a healthcare system? No. And so I don't care. Only the ultimate payer, which is the government, cares. And so we need to get to a system 
in some form. It doesn't have to be nationalized, it can be a state level, it can be others, but that we have structurally solved that problem. Uh, the second problem is that- Structurally solved the problem of incentives yeah, or- that, that your doctor <clears throat> will spend as much time trying to make sure you lose weight because it helps us 20 years from now as just, you know, uh, repair your knee because you were too heavy and put too much yeah. pressure on your knee. Getting more of the value-based care and, and ri care. risk. We're trying to get there in one way, which is the best way that the government can do right now. Uh, there are a lot of interests that are hard to control, but that's the single thing we have to, to, to solve. Then we'd all care about, we do care about smoking, but we care about sugar and diet and exercise and things like that. We care about you um, maybe doing yoga instead of getting back surgery. You know, we have more surgery than anyone and poorer results. So it's, but there's a lot of incentives. You know, if you say, go to a surgeon and say, should I get back surgery? He's like, mm, I think so. That, I think so. When on average, maybe that's not a good idea. So giving you the magic wand, are you no. making, uh, I mean, it, it, how do you actually drive these incentive changes? Is it that the, the government, that there's a uh, either state or federal sponsored uh, uh, health insurance plan that everyone can prescribe to, and then there's more preventative measures that get made? Or do you make a Medicare and Medicaid advantage, like, or a Medicare advantage available to all? How yeah. does that actually so work? That's, there's different ways of solving it. Yeah. I'm not sure I know the perfect one, but all of those go in the right direction. Yeah, got it. Yeah. And you just care mm -hmm. about long-term costs. Getting people to not go to the hot, uh, the emergency room over and over yeah. again and just kind of finding yeah. some of those preventative means. Just the mere fact that so many people don't have health insurance even today you know, is so horrific. You know, I just, you know, a friend of my son's uh, you know, mother just lost her job and now has you know, huge health care costs of $50,000 and can't afford it. That doesn't happen in France. And so she'll make a number of, I mean, not cheap. Someone might make poor decisions along the way, not go to the doctor because they can't afford it. And maybe a $500 procedure would have prevented the ultimate five years from now, $50,000 cancer treatment. Okay. Well, I know you also have a passionate interest in the education system. Mm -hmm. One of the things I heard you say is that you actually can't, I don't know if this is still true, but you can't teach a computer science mm -hmm. class mm -hmm. without having a PhD yeah. in... Yeah related yeah. to computer science or something? Or put it another way, you can, and it is true of almost every academic institution, and you can have a PhD from you know, 1985 when you were studying Fortran. Yeah. Um, but if you are cutting edge you know, person at, at Google, uh, you can't teach a course because you don't have a PhD, even though you are doing the world's you know, definitive work on it right now. Is that, is, is that just an institutional psychological thing? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's confusing teaching versus research. So we still maintain that all of our professors have to be doing research and doing cutting edge work there and, and publishing papers. And the truth is there's a disconnect because you know, your people you know who are going to good schools want to learn a lot of practical skills. Yeah, and they the don't want to learn cobalt or Fortran. <clears throat> and the vast majority don't want to teach. They're gonna, the vast, vast majority. And yet all of you know, institutions are really designed to prepare you to teach and glossing over the fact that most of you are not. Is there any way to, uh, to normalize or make changes, or is it just each school needs to do it at an individual level? It's very hard because it's so prestige-driven. You still want to go teach at the top places because that's sure. good for you. U.S. News and World Report, probably. I mean, look, I've wanted to do this. One of the many things I want to do is start a university. Uh, my wife and I are very involved with the University of the People, which is an enormous nonprofit university that people haven't heard of, which has 125,000 students. It's about 10 years old, and it's online, and it's mostly for people all around the world, for refugees, people like that. It's, it's accredited. It's a great place. And so that is a really practical 
degree and it costs, you know, the cost for us is like $1,200 a year. Whereas, you know, the Ivy League institutions right now, not what do they charge you, what do they spend? They're spending about 200000 per year per student. How, how do you think, if we're projecting this forward, do you think there's just much more democratization of uh, how people learn and yeah. that the Ivy League survives and a handful of the, you know, liberal arts schools survive and then everyone else sort of goes to University of the People or yeah. the state schools or whatever it is just to learn the functional skills? Yeah, we need, we absolutely need to replace, you know, the bottom 50% of, of education and have a different lower cost method. Someone who, you know, graduates from a not well-known university in the middle of somewhere that with a 200,000 of student debt, uh, they're, they're not in a good place. That wasn't worth it for them. You know, the people who graduate from Yale now have on average $12,000 worth of debt, and they're going to pay that off in no time at all. So you never have to worry about the Ivy League. $12,000 worth of debt because of all the scholarships yeah. and so much money, funded. $40 billion yeah. endowment. So, you know, plenty of money. But so the problem is not there. The people are making poor decisions and have poor products. But even, you know, local you. Uh, in the middle of, of the Midwest, still has to offer you know tenure to his professors. Still only has courses you know twenty hours a week. Doesn't use all of their facilities. Still feels like they have to have a football team and offer theater and things like that. And so we just need a, a better variety of products out there. You know, it's there's nothing wrong with a Lamborghini. <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with a twenty thousand dollar cheap car. I choose where I want to be in that spectrum. Yeah. But at universities, in a way, I can't. What, what about the computer science issue? We touched on the diversity of only 13% going in to, to uh, STEM-related stuff, I guess, yep. or uh, in engineering and computer science. What Are there things to be done there, both from a diversity standpoint as well as getting more people into the, uh, into the actual funnel in general? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it really starts at high school. It's not even the university problem. <clears throat> you know, if you look at even... The girls' schools in New York City have far, far, far fewer people in computer science than the boys' schools do. And they're not competing against boys, they're just there. So somewhere along the way, we are not encouraging girls starting at age two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I, I still am frustrated with, you know, my kids went to very good private schools here in New York. They didn't do any computer science when they went in first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade. But they probably had Latin requirements or something. They did. And so that's, you know, the one is Latin is looking backwards, computer science is looking forward. Uh, I'm not against Latin, but don't require that over computer science. Yeah. That is just not the right decision for your children long term. And is that, is that just rooted in the institutions mm -hmm. themselves? It's yeah. just like that's a yeah. philosophical thing that they yeah. need to get away from. Absolutely. It could be changed tomorrow. Look, we're starting to see, at, you know, over time, it just takes time. Schools that are starting up today don't do that. You know, they're not, they're, not, they're, they're more innovative. And they'll start to put pressure on the other ones over time. Now, what about, you've been in the New York ecosystem uh, when it yeah. wasn't an ecosystem, yeah. right? It sounds like back in the day, it was 50 people uh, mm -hmm. yeah, around the table. We've seen it grow very materially. Yeah, probably 300,000 people working in tech now. 300,000 people working in tech. It's, it's everything from, we have the Mongo, we have uh, Datadog, we have Etsy, then we have Google, Facebook, Amazon, everyone with major offices there. What's, your, what's the evolution of all that stuff been like for, for you to see? And where do you think we are on that journey? So it's incredibly gratifying, mostly because vast majority of people didn't believe it was going to happen. You know, I had people say that we wouldn't invest in DoubleClick unless we moved to California. Now they're all moving here because VC firms have to have people here. You can't ignore it. It will be, I've said this for 20 years, this will be the largest tech ecosystem in the country. We're just going to debate the time. You know, it's probably not five years from now, but it easily is 20 years from now. And it all stems from the fact that 
young, smart people who make up most of the tech industry want to live in New York City. It's just, the, and, the, and the edgiest, cutting edge, top 1% people, they want to be here because they, the best clubs are here, the best museums are here, the best ballet, whatever you're into, the best is here. Nick's actually have a good basketball team these days. Exactly, so now everything is yeah. changing. Uh, so, and New York has also solved the one problem, which was a real problem when I moved here, which is there, in 1990, there were 2,200 murders, and now there's gonna be, this year, it'll be like 375 or something. Yeah. And so we become much safer in an unprecedented historic way. And other places like San Francisco have become more dangerous. You know, a, my son is at Stanford Business School and I think he thinks 40% of his classmates have had their car broken into just going into San Francisco, which they do once a month. Doesn't happen here. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I can't let you off. Having seen all these different changes, internet, mobile, and uh, now we've been waiting for the next big thing for a while, yep. right? I know you've spent much time in healthcare, but there's a lot of optimism about AI. Yep. Where, how do you think about that and the potential there? I didn't hear it come yep. up in some of the areas you're interested yeah. in. No, it's a subset of things. I'm incredibly bullish. Like, I'm not, you know, you haven't heard me say crypto either, and we've never been strong there. Use case is not as good. Don't feel as good. Here, uh, I do feel very good. It's, it's more that it's not just one industry, it's gonna be used in everything. And it's just really more an extension of technology. ChatGBT showed what can be done, but more fundamentally is we just need that person who currently we're paying $100,000 to process insurance claims and is taking two months to get back to you, uh, have it being done by a computer. The number of crypto skeptics that are bullish on AI, it's a pretty remarkable thing that I, I think shows the use cases and the yeah. potential and uh, what, what can be. Yeah, and by the way, seven years ago, I was more bullish on crypto than I am today. Yeah. But started to realize you know, years ago that just the, it's, the use case is not that great. Uh, blockchain is not much better than comparable database structures. And for whatever reason, we haven't gotten to the point where crypto is useful. Yeah. Um, but it, AI is fundamental. And it's how, how do you think about the uh, amount of, when we talk about the, the amount of equity value that mm -hmm. the internet companies created, the amount of value that the mobile ecosystem kind of created, do you think AI is on a, how would you weight it? If internet is 10, yeah. where would you put, uh, if mobile is whatever you want to call it, wh where do you put AI? Yeah, it's pretty significant. The, the thing that is going to be hard is, in a way, it's just not really an industry. You know, we've seen technology in manufacturing grow steadily since, I don't know, 1970. Is there a break point? No. Just every year, some kind of the new tool that allows you to make that table or that mug or that something using a, a machine. And eventually that displays jobs, but there's nothing to talk about. This is the same thing. Mm. There's just not a break point. Uh, every single industry, the insurance industry will work this in, but they've been working it in. They've been becoming more efficient over time. They'll just continue. It's a steady curve forever. And I just don't think it'll all be called true AI. That's the way I think about software as well. It's like, what, what is being a software investor? Well, it often means you need deep into industry knowledge in the vertical markets, right? Knowing Viva versus Mongo versus uh, Workday. Like, sure, the business models are maybe related in some ways, but the actual like end user and what it gets used for and all that stuff is going to be very, very different. Yeah. Now, last one before you hop. You went to the South Pole. Yes. Fascinating trip, part of a scientific expedition, uh, went on foot. So uh, there's only about 200 people a year who actually go to the South Pole. But seven days, eight hours a day of pulling a sled. You have to have your tent, your food, everything. No one's pulling things for you. It's 25 degrees below zero. And then the wind chill can bring it much colder. And then uh, the whole thing is the equivalent of 11,000 feet of altitude. 
Uh, so it's physically demanding, psychologically demanding, incredibly uh, impactful, uh, a beautiful thing to see, very meditative, uh, and also quite hard. One of the great things for me was that in our group, I was by far the oldest person, so I'm 59, and uh, my son was me, my, one of my sons who's 25, he was the youngest, so we were the bookends. Everyone else was in their 30s and 40s. Wow. And what was the impetus for doing it? What, what made you just you know, a unique doctor, experience? A doctor I know um, has worked with uh, extreme conditions. So the British military was a sponsor. And one of the things they want to understand is five years from now, they want to send 25 soldiers into the Afghan mountains and monitor each one of them and say, ah, Fred here has glucose level down. He should not go on mission tonight. And Mary has lost 10% of her body weight. That's not good. We need to do something there not just let them float out there. So we're monitoring our computers better than our people. And so this was part of that to understand. We were wearing glucose monitors. We had you know, our urine taken. We had uh, blood taken before, after, uh, interviews every single day, um, special watches, Oura rings, and all this will be put into academic papers at the end of the year. So it was just an interesting thing to be a part of. Uh, I like physical outdoor stuff, and so this was a great thing to do. Well, we'll, we'll end. We'll end there. We're going to get the. I, I want that little video, the drone footage yeah. of you flying and pulling a sleigh uh, yeah. or, a, uh, or a sled or whatever it was around. But Kevin Ryan, thanks for doing this. Thanks for doing it. That was great. Yeah. So that'll do it for the 56th episode of the Logan Bartlett Show. Thank you to Kevin Ryan for, for spending so much time talking through all his history of starting companies. Thank you to Rashad and Sam for their efforts this week and pulling this show together. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, I look forward to seeing everyone again next week on the 57th episode of the Logan Bartlett Show. Hope everyone has a nice weekend.